Yay. Uh, so, uh, so I was not here this past weekend. I don't know if any of you noticed. Um, uh, Ray, Ray uh, was covering for us. I went. I was uh, down in um, down in North Carolina um, at a Aikido event, and since I was already three quarters of the way down the East Coast, I figured I would go visit Leo and Deb uh, Goopel, who are uh, snowbirds living in St. Pete, uh, St. Petersburg. And so Ray, uh, Ray was willing to jump in and cover for me, so I could I could go do that. So I'm at this event. I'm getting thrown around and beat up by people half my age um, for two days. Uh, jumping in, doing teaching and instructing and everything. And I came out of it great. Normally I come out of these things with something hurt. Um, my back, my neck, my legs, you know. Um, I mean, they're all usually still attached, but they're kind of dangling. All right. So I came out, I felt great. It was wonderful. It was amazing. Sunday I get on a plane, I fly down, flew an airline called Avello. All right. I half expected it to be made of marshmallows. It just had a weird sound to it. Um, and uh, Avello makes Spirit look like a luxury airline, um, but it was 35 bucks to get from Raleigh to, to Tampa, so I was okay with that. I had to hold on to the wing the whole way, but it was fantastic. Um, so <laughs> it was made of cloth. There was a guy with handles. Anyway, uh, we get, we get down, I got down to Tampa. Leo picked me up. I went to their house. We're chit-chatting and everything. Everything is great and wonderful. I made it through the whole thing. And I go to lay down in the bed, their guest bed, and manage to walk into their couch. And Leo comes from the other room because he heard the, the crack of my toe. I broke my toe on a couch. All right, of all things, after all that. So then I got home on Tuesday, on my flight home from Tuesday, on Tuesday, one of the guys who organized the event texts me. He says, hey, I've been in bed since Sunday night. I have COVID. <laughs> and I'm looking at my phone going, I'm about to get into an airplane. All right, and this guy picked me up. Now, I'm very conscious, especially... Uh, when I knew I was visiting Leo and Deb, I'm very conscious of keeping my distance. Um, I was social distancing before it was cool. Um, and uh, so I like to keep my distance. I don't like to be in, in face. But I was a little concerned. Um, so I took a test. We were all worried. By, by From Tuesday morning until Wednesday night, they had six positives out of the 25 people that were there. So I'm sitting there going, yeah, I've got COVID. You know, a whole thing. Thursday morning, I took a test. COVID negative. Um, no issues, no whatsoever. I may be the only person that survived the event without getting it. Everybody else is getting sick, but hey, whatever. Um, double checked, made sure it wasn't, wasn't right. Um, but so I came out unscathed with the exception of the fact that I can barely walk. Um, now I'm perfectly fine. It's a middle toe. You don't even really need those. So, um, so it, just tape it up and get on with life. Eventually it numbs up and you move on. All right, so let's get into the scriptures. That's the only story I have. We're going to get into the book of John, uh, chapter 17. I'm going to invite you to join me in prayer one more time as we come to the Word of God. Jesus, you know who we are. You know where we're coming from. You know what's going on in our minds right now. You know the laughter and the tears that make up our lives and everything in between. And as now we turn our attention to you and your word, take us from where we are to where you need us to be, where you want us to be. Guide us, empower us, gift us, 
transform us, renew us, chasten us, whatever is required for us to be the people that you believe we can be. And knowing that you believe we can be your church, we thank you for being our head, our savior, and our king. And we come to you now and your word in your name. Amen. So we're going to start a a little mini-series in John 17, uh, Jesus' Prayer. Now, um, last week uh, we started, we we had a a prayer guide that's taking us through John 17 that that was in the back. If you didn't get a chance to grab it, we have paper copies. Um, It's also available online. Um, But uh, it's it's a a journey uh, through this passage um, asking, I hope, some questions that get us thinking about what Jesus has to say. And uh, for the next three weeks, we're going to be looking specifically um, at John 17, Jesus' prayer in John 17, which is called, um, by most commentators, his high priestly prayer. Jesus has finished um, talking to his disciples. Uh, They have gone from the upper room where they had the Lord's table, the Last Supper, and and he had washed their feet, and Judas had gone out, and he had spoken to them a little bit, and they had gone along on the path, and, and they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is John's reporting of Jesus' prayer uh, in the Garden before he's betrayed. It's much more elaborate than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in the, in the guide that we put out on, on Wednesday um, or last week, in the back there's a breakdown of the synoptic gospels that, that's Latin for see together or Greek to get, see together, sin opticos, um, to see with the same eyes. Um, they, they have a, a way of presenting this, but John uh, gives us a much more elaborate version of Jesus' prayer. Um, and, and I have to think that at least some of this was that John heard parts of it Um, But John also interacts with the resurrected Jesus, and I have a feeling that John's the kind of person um, who would ask the question, what what did you pray uh, while we were falling asleep? What was it that you said for us? And remember that John is writing not to the first generation, the people who were alive when Jesus was around, but the second and third generation of Christians, people who are somewhat distant, removed from Christ and Christ's physical presence, and so very similar to us. We're going to take a look at just the first five verses of John 17. Uh, it concludes, it, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, in other words, he was finished talking to his disciples about the world and everything else, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, now, as we go through this, watch for words that repeat. Father, the hour has come Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Uh, Now, 
this is this is the line that that line by the way at the end the glory that i had with you before the world existed um john recording that that is probably the reason that john in the book of revelation refers to jesus as the lamb slain from the foundations of the world um because the glory that jesus had was not just um presence or power or halo or white robe or or anything like that but rather the glory was um his offering his sacrifice for us but i i want to take just these first few verses and look at the way that that as john records jesus's words and as jesus prayed the structure that is here um is uh, a literary structure that's used to kind of bring the same ideas up over and over again he opens with father and then again in verse uh verse 5 he says father All right. So that tells us that there's an opening and a closing. Uh this is what in in um in Greek we call it a chiasmus or or a chiasma. Um the Greek word key looks like an x, all right? Um and the idea is that there's a crossing pattern. There's a pattern where you have a beginning and an ending and you have a center. So when I give you the center of the of the structure here, the center is in verse 3. This is eternal life. that they know you the only true god and jesus christ whom you have sent so that's the center of this first opening phrase that that everything is going to be built off of this idea that jesus's ministry to the disciples and to us the church starts at, at its core is this idea that we are called we are gifted we are being directed Jesus is ministering in us so that we might know the only true God and Jesus Christ who he sent Now if we go back to John chapter 1 and verse 18 John says no one has seen God the only God who is at the father's side he has made him known It's a really curious statement um because of the way that it's punctuated and 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 this idea and I mentioned this a few weeks ago John when he describes uh God and he describes Jesus um they 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 phase in and out of each other John allows attention to exist as to the persons of the Godhead uh he he doesn't want to clearly he's never going to draw a straight line and go this is where god the father stops and this is where jesus starts he he he's very careful to leave a mystery to to leave a tension as we read this and so we have this weird paradox of no one has ever seen god who is the only god all right the one god deuteronomy chapter 6 says god is one and yet at the same time he calls jesus the son the one god so he's maintaining this tension this this way of of presenting things um that's difficult for those of us who like to quantify and control knowledge it's one of the extraordinary things about john but at the core of this of this statement is this is eternal life that they know you the only true god and jesus christ whom you have sent Right at the middle of this is this idea of knowledge. And it is so important that we understand that the only access we have to God as the church 
The access we have to God as the, is, as the church and as believers is through Jesus. It is not that I am able to understand God. That as a, as a Christian, you get, you get more and more godified. All right? And as you get godified, you're able to understand God. God is the ultimate reality. He is the ultra, ultimate extra reality. He is transcendent in every possible way. So he chooses to reveal himself to us in his word. His written word, but more importantly, the living word, Jesus. We do not get to glimpse God in his full majesty. We as sinners would not be capable of seeing God as he truly is. But rather, he chose to send his son to take on flesh, to dwell among us, to be one of us, that we might glimpse the glory of God the Father. And we need to understand this. This is a very humbling notion. This is a very humbling idea to realize that what we have, all the glory, all the beauty, all the amazing things that we are able to observe in this world, all the fellowship that we share with one another, the blessed union of marriage and relationship, uh, of having children, all of these great and glorious and wonderful things that we have in this world, they are only glimpses through the fractured cracks of reality of God. The greatest love that you have ever experienced in your life, the greatest devotion that you have ever observed, the most extraordinary things that you have ever seen are only fractured glimpses of reality. This past week, my wife and I celebrated our 24th wedding anniversary. Yeah, sure, that's great for you. I started off with gold presents in our first year. That was a mistake. Rookie, rookie mistake. All right, what are we going to do for 25? We've been debating what we're going to do for our 25th anniversary for like six months. The extraordinary and overwhelming um, experience of the love that we have grown into. The, the um, irreplaceable nature of our reality together. Uh, when I travel, I don't sleep well because I don't have my wife there. I can actually sense if she gets out of the bed, out of bed. I don't wake up, but I can sense it. I swear I can. Um, the other night, Wallace, our dog, decided to sleep on my left side instead of my right side, would push me into her side of the bed, which is actually three quarters of the bed, and and she wasn't comfortable, and so she had to move to the other room. And I immediately knew that she wasn't there. Like, I, I, I woke up, and even before I turned over, I knew she wasn't there. Um, and I was, every time that happens, I pray that it wasn't the rapture, and I got it wrong every single time. Um, you know, so, but anyway, uh, so, the, but the, that, that, that intertwining of relationships, those of you that have been married for a while, you know, um, even though sometimes you can't stand each other, right? And I'm not tell, I'm not, I don't think I'm speaking out of school. We all have those moments. But you can't imagine life without. You're, you're, you're so connected. And you realize that that is just a fragment of the connection that God has. With all of creation. 
with everything. Um, It's just a fragment of the love that he has. So at the very core of this, if you want to know internal life, it is to know God through Jesus. You say, you say to me, you know, well, what is the point of eternal life? The current one's not that great. The eternal life is not the perpetuation. It's not this life in perpetuity. It's not like the Egyptians believed that when you went to the afterlife, you just lived this life just, you know, in more color. Eternal life is life eternal in every possible way. All of the beauty, all of the glory, all of the extraordinary things about our lives, all of the love, all of the devotion, all of the truth, all of the feeling of the presence of God, all of that in every direction possible for all distance that is possible, that's eternal life. To be in the presence of a God and not have to cower because of our sin, but through the forgiveness of Christ to be in His glory. That's eternal life. Everything bad about the world stripped away and everything good magnified to infinity. It's worth taking a chance, taking a step, and having faith. Real quickly, I want to talk about Jesus' prayer here that grows out of His relationship with the Father. Because... If we are followers of Christ, we are called to be like Christ and to pray as he has prayed. And Jesus already experiences this complete knowledge of God the Father. And so he prays in a way that we aspire to pray to. That centerpiece, that eternal life, that to know God and to know the Son, he already has that. And so as we strive for it, we pray together and I just want to give you a quick couple of quick points. I promise I won't go long. A couple of quick points. I actually have three. Um, first of all, when Jesus starts his prayer, Jesus is in proper submission to God the Father. You want to know how to pray? Everybody says, how do I pray? When Jesus prayed, the first thing he always does is he begins with acknowledging the extraordinary reality of who he is talking to. Now, if Jesus does that, and he already knows God in the most intimate, triune way that he could possibly do that, I guess we should do it too. Um, I've never been a big fan of praying, starting with, Dear Jesus, my reason is, that's how I start a letter to my, like, cousins dear amy dear joe i'm not talking to one of my peers i'm speaking through jesus to the god of the universe and so that's also by the way in case you've ever noticed why when i pray in public i don't start talking right away i am forcing my giant ego down and you're like He's got a giant ego. All human beings have a giant ego. Even those of us that don't have an ego have an ego about not having an ego. It's just human nature. All right? Forcing the reality of who I am down to where it belongs in the presence of the one I'm addressing. Now, Jesus, when he prays, he lifts his eyes to heaven. 
And I think that he takes a posture where he looks up. Now, I actually think Jesus could see God. I'm not saying, like, we can't. But um, he was so connected. But he takes a posture of, I'm here, you're there. He acknowledges the extraordinary reality of who he is speaking to. Secondly, Jesus speaks truth about himself in his prayer. He speaks truth about who he is in the one he is speaking to. Look at what Jesus says. He says in verse 2, Since you have given him, he's talking about himself, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now, the doctrine that's charged into that, salvation through Jesus Christ and him alone, there's a lot going on about that. But keep in mind that Jesus, he states who he is in God the Father. And so often we are unwilling to state who we are when we pray. Not who we are by our own abilities and our own powers, but who we are in God, in Christ. We come to God with kind of like either a bombastic, Oh Lord, Thou dost hear us because we are the people who doth speak in Jacobean language. Alright? Or, dear Jesus, I know I'm just such a horrible, terrible, I just I guess if you, maybe if you could see your way clear to hear me and that would be great. And so you're beating on ourselves the entire time. But when Jesus comes to the Father in prayer, he comes to the Father as the person he is in God. And brothers and sisters, when you come to Christ, when you come to God, you need to come to them as the person you are in Christ. A sinner abiding in grace, entrusted with the work of the gospel. Your hands are supposed to be the hands of God on earth. Your feet are supposed to take you where you're supposed to do the work of the gospel on earth. You are not just a beat down peasant in the kingdom of God. You are part of the body of Christ. You are members together with the greatest Christian that ever lived and the worst Christian that ever lived. In grace, you are called to stand before the throne of God and in confidence say, I'm yours. And this is what is on my heart. This is what you've called me to do, and I don't know how to do it. This is the relationship you've given to me, and I need to heal it, and I don't know how to, but I believe you have given this to me, so how? God, this is yours. I'm yours. We pray to God from such a distance We push ourselves down. We don't trust what the scriptures say about the covenant that the creator of all things has has created in Christ for us to speak to him. The writer of Hebrews says, we are to go meekly before the throne of God. That's not what the Bible says. It says, I may go boldly into the throne of God. I can step into God into God's throne. I can pray and I can be honest with God about my struggles because they don't surprise him. I say this all the time, but it's important we understand there's nothing going on in your head that God isn't aware of. 
oh God, I don't know how to admit this to you that I've been struggling with this. And God is like, can we move along to the part where you ask me to do something? Because I already know that. Now we're called to repent. We're called to call it what it is. We come to God. We need to declare our sins. We need to confess our sin. Jesus comes to God. He says who he is in, in God the Father. And, and, and we can come to God and we can say who we are. God, I'm a sinner. I have fallen. I've misbehaved. I've gotten into sin. I don't know what the problem is. But rather than beating myself up about this, I believe that I'm your child and your spirit can transform me. So God, do what you need to do. Jesus comes knowing who he is in Christ or in 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 the God in the father. And then finally, I kind of hinted out about this. Prayer, when Jesus ends, he says, and now. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Prayer acknowledges who it is we're speaking to. Acknowledges who I am. And then it believes that God will do what he said he would do. God did not say he would make you rich. Stop praying for it. God did not say he would fix your transmission. He would provide. I mean, I've seen people, dear Lord, sitting down at McDonald's, please alter the molecular structure of this food that it might be healthy like a salad, (laughs) but tastier. I've tried that prayer. I eat Oreo cookies by the sleeve. Does not help my figure. God does not transmogrify that into vegetables. It's not the way it works. But I can claim what God says He will do. When we came, when we came here, we came here, and I've told this story repeatedly, but I will tell it until I die. And I sat in Bob Bragdon's living room, and he asked me why a cool, hip pastor would ever want to put up. With the the church, I don't remember the exact words he used, but a beat up old church. And I said, and I believe this, God does not give up on his church. If there is something wrong with the church, it is not God that is at fault. Recently this week, I got an email about a church uh, that I was there at the beginning had to close its doors because of the failings of the leadership. And it's heartbreaking because there are a lot of believers who had who had part of that church who now are left without a place to worship, left uh, feeling broken and hurt because they've been lied to and, and deceived and, and mistreated. And, and so many people will want to take that as an opportunity to say, see, the church, the church abuses, the church manipulates, the church uh, destroys, the church wants to use up people, the church is, is led by corrupt people. You know, they, they, we love to throw those phrases out. It's so easy for people to just dismiss the church. The problem is not Christ's bride. It's those who are abusing her. 
The problem is not the gospel. The problem is sometimes those who use the gospel as a tool, as a, as a bludgeon. When Jesus came to the Father, what did he pray for? Dear Jesus, drop us a million and a half dollars so we can build a single-story sanctuary with a bathroom we don't have to use stairs to get to. That is not, not something that God promised. Now, if it happens, if any of you ever win the lottery, you better tithe. That's all I'm telling you. Not going to question where it came from, but but when Jesus prays, Jesus prays for what God has said he will do. How do we know what God wants for us? The Word of God, the Spirit of God, the people of God. Don't expect God to give you what you expect, what you want, what you think you need. You must be submitted to the authority of God. You must be willing to spend time in the scriptures. You must be willing to devote yourself to hearing the words and voice of God. In his revealed word. So you know what he has planned for you. What he wants you to do. And then you have to seek The Spirit of God. How does that come out? How is that expressed? What is that going to look like today? And then you need to check that against the people of God. Because sometimes false spirits deceive. You need to make sure that what you are being called to do or believe is in the Scriptures, that, that it's really there. And that the voice that you're hearing is really the Spirit of God. But then, if you know it's what God's called you to do, By the way, you don't need to pray about certain things. You don't need to pray about whether you need to be faithful to your wife. You do need to be. You don't need to pray about whether you need to be obedient to your parents. You do. It's in the Bible. It wasn't written by parents to manipulate you. God put that there. You don't need to pray about whether you should steal from your boss or not. There are certain things you don't need to pray about. But there's a lot we need to do. But when we find what God has called us to do and to be, when we come to God praying, we need to believe that he's going to do it. I mentioned my wife and our our relationship. When I started to be a pastor about 2006, we went through an unbelievably terrible time. It was awful. My wife was dealing with problems from having our daughter, um, physical, mental issues with childbirth and being in the hospital for seven days. And um, I mean, raising my kid in and of itself is a challenge. We had people stabbing us in the back and lying about us. And I was struggling. I was struggling. I was a young pastor. I was 30 years old. 
At one point, I stood in front of the church. I read from my journal. I said, I just don't know if I, I don't know if I believe this anymore. I'm beat up. I'm tired. I'm worn out. My wife and I were, were sometimes not even on talking terms because I just was so drained. I didn't have the energy to invest in the single most important human relationship I had. And my dad, um, and I talk about him all the time, not perfect, but awful smart. My dad just said to me, don't make my mistakes. That's all he said. My dad never in my entire life, with the exception of a couple times when I was really young and really stupid, never raised his voice correcting me. He just simply said, don't make my mistakes. And I said, all right. I promised God, one God, one church, one wife. That means I can't blow that third one. So that becomes the most important relationship in my life. And it was hard. It was hard to drag myself out of all the feelings and emotions and problems I was having. And say, these don't matter. These are not as important as my wife knowing that I love her. So I'm going to find a way to deal with those things. Whatever it is, whatever I have to do, I'm going to deal with the garbage in my life. I'm going to face it. I'm going to deal with it because, God, you called me to be Nicole's husband. Not just to be the guy married to her, her husband. She needs to know that I love her. She needs to know that I desire to be with her. She needs to know that I'm going to support her and be with her. I'm going to be the husband that Christ called me to be. It was hard work. It took a long time for her to trust me that I was telling the truth. That I was changing my entire worldview because the most important human being in the world to me as husband is Nicole. And sometimes y'all need to be reminded of who the most important person is. I'm too busy to listen to my wife. Flag on the play. I've got too much going on to deal with his crap. Flag on the play. Most important person in the world. You say, what about the president? They come and go. And they're of mediocre levels lately anyway. What about football? Not as important as your wife, guys. Sorry, even the Patriots. Even Tom Brady. You've got to come to God believing what you're called to be. And believing that he will do it. That he will make it happen. Believing. Coming to the one you know. Acknowledging who you're coming to. Acknowledging who you are in front of him. And then believing he will do what he called you to do. What he made you to do. What he gifted you to do. 
Go ahead and word of prayer. Father, I'm not naive enough to believe that every relationship represented in this room is focused properly on your priorities. I'm not naive enough to believe that every person in this room has a vibrant, lively prayer life. I'm not naive enough to believe that everybody in this room has submitted themselves to your leadership. I'm not naive enough to believe, Father, that everyone here has all the hurts of the church and relationships and failures and brokenness. They've got it all sorted out. Father, I am naive enough to believe that you will do what you promised in our lives. Help us to know your promises and treasure them, bury them deep in our heart and soul. And believe when we come to you, the extraordinary reality. And we come as who you have called us to be, your children, your people, your church, your men, your women. And we ask for you to do what you have promised to do, that you will do it. Even when we don't feel it. Even when we don't even really necessarily think we need it. Help us to submit our will to yours.